Hey folks, welcome to episode 13 of the Letterpress Digest podcast. For this episode, I talk with Andrew Steves of Gaspro Press. He and Gary Dunfield started this endeavor back in 1997 in Nova Scotia, Canada. Uh, they're now a well-known and award-winning literary press, uh, and Andrew is full of wisdom and insight, uh, and I think you'll really enjoy his musings for the next hour. Uh, so here we go. Hey, folks. I want to welcome Andrew Steves of Gasparo Press. Andrew, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. <laughs> I am really excited to talk to you, Andrew, but w one of the things I'm trying to wrap my head around, so, so from what I gather, you are a printer, a writer, a publisher, an editor, and a typographer, not to mention your time after hours making sugar maple and raising sheep. Um, so I would say that's a really diverse skill set. Uh, so let's start there. What's your story? <laughs> I don't know. I just, uh, the, <laughs> we're all human beings, I suppose. <laughs> we all have, it's funny, you, you sort of talk to people, you look at their work, and you could get this impression that they that they don't sleep or they, they don't go have homes <laughs> to go to. They just they just sleep right in the bed of the press or something. But yeah, but yeah no, I know. Um, I guess you're, you're gleaning some of that probably from my uh, my Instagram feed. And yes, I, I've kind of always made a point of trying to make sure I show kind of the broad spectrum of what's going on. So just for that very reason, because, you know, like we're first and foremost, like, you know, brothers and sisters and fathers and sons and and all those things, you know, in our community, we're just people. And, and uh, our work, I think the quality of our work, the characteristics of our work come out of that just regular everyday human experience but but to answer your question i mean how i got here <laughs> is not such a straight line i mean i grew up in new brunswick and in a, a household that you know was not populated by readers and books were not really part of my life and um hmm. but magazines and newspapers were for sure and so i ended up going uh off to university uh in ontario and I studied criminology. I was doing a lot of work with young offenders and and that kind of age group, you know, kids who at risk and doing a lot of kind of taking kids out into the woods, kind of outward bound kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Just trying to give them, again, some context, you know, of a broader, a broader world beyond their troubles. And uh, I kind of fell out of that in the sense that the criminal justice system didn't look like a really great place to sort of spend my life. You know, like it was, mm -hmm. it, it was a, a big system with a lot of constraints on what you could do and say, and, and on your, your odds of having any real impact. And so I thought I'd teach school or something. So I took English uh, as a sort of, uh, you know, secondary uh, teachable, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, I ended up doing a master's degree in that. And when I wrote my master's thesis, I was, the thing I was looking at was a, actually a, a journalist, back to that again, um, from New Brunswick, uh, who, who had been a columnist in the newspaper when I was a kid, but was also a you know, Governor General's award-winning poet in Canada, a guy named Alden Nolan. And there was this collection of letters that he'd written to another writer. It's about 150 letters. And so these were, I found these while I was researching something else. They were in disarray. And I saw an opportunity to do an original project by, you know, ordering these letters and annotating them. And inadvertently, this activity gave me like a crash course in Canadian literary publishing from the 1960s through into the 1980s, which was a pretty important, fertile period. There was there was money in, in the mm -hmm. game at that point. And there was a lot of great activity going on. And so, you know, accidentally, I got this education in, like, uh, what literary publishing was like in Canada. And after that, for some unreally foreseen reason, I uh, Gary Dunfield, who I knew just from around town, we had kids of similar ages, and we decided that together we would start a, a literary press. And I have no idea why we thought that would be a viable <laughs> way to make a living. There you go. That's the short yeah. answer to your question. Wow. So And so y'all started um, Gasparo Press then? 
back in? What, yeah, and, and we started on the white collar end of it, like okay. like normal book publishers. Um, you know, normal book publishers don't run printing presses. They don't run binderies. They 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 don't they don't even design books usually. They they sub all that work out to other people. But Gary and I are both you know rural New Brunswickers and and we really couldn't let other people have all the fun jobs. So, like, um, so there was, you know, over time, over really, you know, so within three years of starting, we had, uh, we were running a full fledged print shop. Uh, we just couldn't stay out. Wow. Of um, so we, and originally would, you know, do little bits of work. We had a graphics camera, you know, in my garage, which we were shooting film with, you know, to, to make the plates to go on the printing press that someone else ran and uh, just to save money. And, mm-hmm. but over time, you know, we, we kept taking on more and more aspects of production because we were able to do two things. One was we were able to control the, the cost because, you know, it was a, every check you didn't have to write was, a, you know, more control you had. Right. And, but we also were able to control the quality of the work, uh, which you can't always do when you're the client. So, and the third thing that I always forget to mention is it was fun. <laughs> it was interesting. <laughs> we were just curious and, yeah. and uh, you know, that doesn't sound quite as uh, profound as controlling quality and cost, but really it was also about the curiosity and, and uh, just stepping into our lives. Wow. Yeah. So, so book publishing is something I am uh, very naive about, right? So I, I mean, I understand the basics that, you know, there's the random house of the world who, you know, the, would, would publish books that I go buy at Barnes and Noble. Um, but there is a whole spectrum, obviously, of, of, of book publishing. Um, you guys are, are very much a part of that. And, and I don't really understand sort of how that works and where everyone fits. I mean, do you have a book publishing in 30 seconds? I mean, what is the... Well, you know, it, it looks sideways at almost anything. Agriculture is a good example, and it's it's no different. I mean, in that you have this this range of scale, right? So on on the big end of agriculture is the person that grows your chickens for Kentucky Fried Chicken or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, and for the grocery store chains. And on, on the lower end is, you know, the smaller end, I should say, is is the person that you buy eggs from at the farm gate, and like there's this whole spectrum of uh, of sizes and different ways of engaging with the supply chain and so on and with the distribution network and so publishing's no different really a publisher is someone who stands you know between who who has a, a you know access to capital or not um, and <laughs> and has access to knowledge and 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 skills you know um, and so the the writer. Uh, you know, brings a book to a publisher and the publisher, you know, marshals, you know, all of these things together to get that book out there in front of the public. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it can be really simple, as simple as the guy that is photocopying, you know, poems and putting them in zines and selling them in a street corner. That's publishing, you know, mm-hmm. up, up to the kind of multinational, the Bertelsmann, you know, owned companies like Random House and, and HarperCollins and the big guys who have, uh, you know, put, put a lot more money in and get a lot more money out. So it's right. really, you know, it, fundamentally publishing is, um, you know, taking a, a text in the raw and preparing it and putting and presenting it to the public in some fashion right. and controlling that process economically, uh, ter- you know, trying to make a dollar at it and handing some of that money along to the author. Mm-hmm. Well, so what does it look like for you guys? I mean, if I if I came to you and said I have a great idea for a book and it's a mystery novel, is that something you would publish, or is it kind of? I know you you published you guys have published a lot of poems, for instance. Is it? Yeah. Do you kind of specialize in that field, or? We do, and I mean, we're not okay. like so highly specialized that we only do poetry, but we're definitely a literary press. We definitely have areas of interest. There's no sense me trying to sort of hey compete with Harry, you know, Harry Potter or something. I don't have the <laughs> right. I don't have the, you know, that's a kind of a specialized market. And as is like say detective fiction, uh, fiction or, or or mysteries or so on. So so we sort of have areas of the market that we're, you know, we specialize in, and also a kind of scale that we specialize in. You know, if you really, if you got a book that should be selling in the millions of copies, I mean, we're really not the right place to come. But if if you're looking, you know, at something that's sort of our our sweet spot is kind of you know things that sell between 400 and say 2,000 copies, that's where we really function best. And uh, we've had books that uh, have won the largest literary prizes in Canada and have sold in the you know hundreds of thousands. Um, and we've had books that you know 
well, don't sell much at all. I mean, you know, but we're but brought something important or, uh, to the sort of cultural conversation, or certainly worth doing. So it, it's a it's a complicated, it's simple and complicated all the same time. It, it's it's a very diverse kind of activity. Yeah. Uh, and and for me, I don't know. Uh, I really enjoy this this this, and it's not normal, but I really enjoy this <laughs> this process of controlling. Uh, and being in, engaged in everything from from one end to the other, so the same, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, assess all the unsolicited manuscripts that come in and, and pick a few, and 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 we publish say ten or twelve books a year plus some letterpress projects, and but also being the one who is engaged in doing really the editing for the most part, um, the design of the book. Uh, you know, uh, overseeing the printing with Gary. Gary handles handles more the the offset, the contemporary printing and the bindery, and I handle more the letterpress work. And a lot of our books have a letterpress jacket, say, and an offset printed inside. So mm-hmm. I like the kind of mischievousness of <laughs> rescuing letterpress from you know being simply an artisanal activity and bringing it back to some component of the trade, even if it is just the jacket. And uh, so that. You know, you can buy a book for you know, say twenty dollars from us. That's a you know, a, a book of a new book of poems by a contemporary writer, and the insides are printed on a nice, a nice you know, wood pulp paper and and uh, uh, with a it's kind of creamy colored and laid paper and well printed offset uh, and and smith sewn so the binding won't fall fall apart and uh, bound into a paper cover and then it's wrapped around it is often a handmade piece of paper that's been printed letterpress from photopolymer mm-hmm. and uh so you get this whole kind of spectrum of you know many types of many types of printing technology still coming to work you know still putting their boots on and coming to work mm-hmm. uh to make to make a contemporary thing that's affordable yeah, I mean, it's definitely you guys. Definitely are. are I'm. I'm. St- I'm kind of We're trying weird. to. Yeah, weird. you are. You're very weird. <laughs> so the publishers that I know uh, find it quaint. You know, they don't. They, in some ways, they they think it's. You know, uh, they keep telling me it can't be done, and yet uh, we do it for 21 years, right. and we're doing okay, and. And the printers I know, they think, why would you waste your profits? Uh, why would you throw them away on publishing poetry books? And why are you still using these old machines? Oh, my God. So, so kind of, we, yeah. you know, we don't really fit. And I'm okay with that. I mean, we yeah. we kind of look for uh, our colleagues where we can find them, you know. Yeah, you know, and I mean, so obviously letterpress is, is, is a um, – it's a, it's a big part, but maybe not the primary part of, of your overall um, business, Gaspar Press. But, you know, it's definitely one of the things. So, for instance, you mentioned your Instagram. Account. You have very active, great Instagram account. I love following you. are very yes. snarky also, which I enjoy sometimes. <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> um, but uh, the, as far as letterpress, I mean, that, that's, that's clearly something you, you do quite a bit of uh, out of enjoyment somewhat, right? Even if it's not something you do all the time for for book um publishings maybe you do the jacket like you said but uh, everything else will be will be offset so you know I, I, well i would say the the like the ethos of of letterpress is what underpins everything that we do whether okay. uh, wh- whether it's a, a trade work or or limited edition you know more normal sort of here's what letterpress costs kind of things like i you know we we have this thing in the letterpress community that that is kind of well, first off, there's it, it gets under my skin sometimes, though I understand it that, that you know the kind of uh, I'm 48, so there's a lot of people. There's an increasing number of people younger than me, and a decreasing number of people older than me. But <laughs> the, the crowd that's un, you know younger than me has come to the, come to dinner later than I got here. Yeah. Um, often has this sort of notion that that they're saving this thing that it was in danger and and was lost and was. I mean, letterpress has really been chugging along, doing its thing in various, you know, aspects, even within the trade, um, you know, for quite a while. And, and, and it's, it's never really, it, it, it's, you know, it's not as prominent as it, as it was, but, but part of the problem with that kind of outlook is that it, it denies the reality of these tools in terms of what they are. I mean, I have a linotype machine. And that linotype machine was built to run 24 hours a day, 
to crank out work, you know, for profit. Like right. it was not made as a, some sort of like difficult and cranky artisanal thing. Um, the vertical melee I have or the, or the Chandler and Price press that I have, I mean, these presses were made to knock work out day after day after day, um, you know, for, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, pizza flyers of the day, <laughs> like it was not, it was not made, you know, and it's not to say that it, they couldn't do extraordinary rarefied work, but we forget that they also were tools. They were hammers. They were the chainsaws. They were the, you know, right. they, they were not just, you know, to make rarefied or special things. They, they're robust. They're really great tools. And so part of our model is, is, you know, Kind of problematizing when, when technologies kind of fall off the end of the apple, you know, cart. You know, uh, they often get picked up by by artists, you know, mm -hmm. because they're available. You know, like they're they're cheap. Right. But um, that's you know they they can still be used to do all of these you know complex workaday things. Yeah, I, it's I, it is really fascinating, you know, because I, I think in, as you've said elsewhere, um, now it's called letterpress printing, but it just used to be called printing, right? And and yeah, and yeah. and kind of this arts and craft uh, movement has not overtaken letterpress, but it's changed it, right? I mean, it is definitely uh, different in many respects because of the artistic side of it now. Whereas you guys seem to want you, you try to sort of marry the the trade aspect of letterpress and, and continue that on. I've got, yeah. And I've got a lot of tools in my toolbox and I guess that's the bigger, the bigger metaphor ultimately is that this is a toolbox. Mm -hmm. And for me, there's things that it makes zero sense for me to hand set in metal and to print on handmade paper and other things that it makes zero sense for me to run through a photocopier mm -hmm. and other things that it make, you know, like you've got, so you've got to pick the right tool. You've got to look at what the purpose is. You've got to look at what, you know, what the economics are. And you, you've got to look at what the impact is. Now, you know, the impact of, of using one type of tool to make a piece versus using another. And not just the impact on, you know, uh, the piece that you make, but the impact on the user, you know, the person who makes it, what impact using a letterpress has for me in my day versus using a photocopier. Um, you know, the impact on, on the person who... Uh, is, is receiving it or using it, you know, like it, it's, it, we, we always want to reduce everything to kind of like nice and tidy, you know, a spreadsheety kind of economics about, you know, this makes sense, that doesn't make sense. And we forget about the soul, for lack of a better word. We, for, we forget about what the, these other impacts are that are less tangible, right. that are, you know, essential to, if you're going to get out of bed and bother to make something, you clearly believe in the soul. I mean, you clearly <laughs> believe that there's something, you know, important about, uh, to human beings about the activity of making something about, uh, you know, asserting their creative uh, vision, you know, into the world. Yeah. Otherwise, it, why wouldn't you just go to Walmart? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people do, you know, uh, <laughs> um, uh, one of the really interesting, uh, so you, in, this past fall, you, you, um, I guess wrote a book or a trade book called 60 over 20. Uh, yeah. And so in that you, you talk a bit about this, about, letterpress printing and kind of the philosophy of where it is today almost. Um, yeah, yeah. And it, to me, it's, it's, you know, it's really fascinating, this division between the graphic letterpress, as you describe it, and the textual letterpress. There's this kind of two schools of thought that aren't always aligned, but it's not a, it's not a clear division, right, between printing no, something. No, nor are they in opposition, I don't think, right. really. And, I mean, I, I, come from a, I come from a tradition of, you know, where you argued at the kitchen table, and not because you were angry, but because you just, someone said something, you would take the opposite position, ultimately, because <laughs> that's, you know, made a conversation interesting. But it's, it's tricky sometimes to, uh, uh, to raise a caution, say, without it sounding like a criticism of someone else's, mm. you know, approach. And, uh, you know, we're at a moment, I think, where the sort of graphic approach to letterpress is king. You know, um, if you look at what's, you know, how, what most people's like, most people's pathway into doing letterpress is, is through the graphic side. Is they're coming through printmaking programs, they're coming through graphic design programs, 
you know, they're not coming out as I did of sort of a literary background as to why, you know, like the reason I print is because I've got something to say and, I, and there are people in my community who need to speak to each other through, through text. And I want to be part of that process of helping them do that. Mm-hmm. So that, and that's an oversimplification, but it, but it's fundamental to what got me here. Now, obviously I'm interested in the visual. I mean, and in the graphic and, and I, I certainly, you know, I, you know, I came through, through university, I worked on a student newspaper and so on. And I was not on the editorial side. I was in the graphics department. I was a cartoonist and I was laying out pages and I was doing all of that. Um, so it's not that it's, you know, I've come strictly out of one side or the other, but, but there's whatever kind of direction you come to letterpress from, you bring that, you know, understanding and, and all of its sort of strengths and weaknesses with you. And, uh, I don't know. I think when when things are healthy, we're having a conversation about it, and we're looking more widely than our own viewpoint um, to understand. You know, like I, some of my best, you know, uh, friends in the letterpress world are people who are not readers particularly, but they are visual mm-hmm. people. So you know, and uh, we had uh, Mike Heffer here from uh, Clawhammer Press out west here this uh, this past at our Ways Goose, our open house in the fall, and. Uh, yeah, I think he was surprised when I asked him at first because he's really kind of a, a poster artist, you know. He's not a book guy, and but, but you know he's he brings the same kind of passion and the same kind of care and and you know intelligence, you know, to the the work that he does, even though it's not often driven by text, as say uh, you know somebody like uh, Gray Zeitz who runs Larkspur Press in Kentucky, who's been for you know forty years publishing people like Wendell Berry and, uh, you know, a Richard Taylor and the, all of these incredible writers from his community. And he's used like handset type and CNP, you know, clamshell presses hmm. to like equip his community to think and imagine. And he brings the same kind of wiliness, the same kind of intelligence to his, uh, his program as say Mike Heffer does graphically right so i mean is it, it you know you're looking i for me personally i'm always looking for people who are in with both feet and who are uh taking you know who, who are in conversation with all the strengths and weaknesses that they have and trying to figure out how to serve their community how to sort of say something relevant about the time and the place in which they they're standing yeah that uh, you there's so much time uh, <laughs> there's so so much to unpack there, but I, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, that's a lot of thoughts. That's a, that's a lot of really deep thoughts. It's great. Um, one of the things that you, I've seen you talk quite a bit about, and you, you just kind of is sort of the central, one of the central themes to what you're discussing is the sense of community. And so how, how do you view your place as a publisher, editor, letterpress printer in your community? I mean, how do you, how do you, as you said, is, is your is your role to facilitate communication through printed means? I suppose. I mean, that makes it sound awfully sort of, you know, two-dimensional. But, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a, in a way. I mean, when you think about what, uh, in, in, the, in the most basic sense, um, language is about metaphor. I mean, language is this trick that we do to carry our, you know, thought, and meaning through through time and space, right? So, so uh, you know, the, not just the the graphic representation of letters and words on the page, but also like the the sounds that I'm making right now are, are have no relation particularly to the meaning that they convey. It's a completely abstract system that humans have evolved, and uh, you know, at, at the at the peak of that system, in my mind, is poetry. Because poetry is this thing that it is like language that is mo- the most careful and the most kind of uh, the, the least tamed, I guess, the most wild. And it has this, this re- you know, it sort of is like the, it is the, it is what underpins sort of all of human communication and thought is, is poetry. Uh, it, it is, it's what's under the hood when you pop it open. <laughs> Even if you're just saying, hey, Jordan, pass the salt, you know, <laughs> underneath that is, is the, you know, the, the DNA is all poetry. And uh, right. so as a publisher, you know, we do a fair amount of like everyday work from, you know, 
from pizza flyers straight through, you know, to, to head letterhead for lawyers and accountants. Like we use our, our skills and our equipment to do those things and to, and to serve that kind of purpose within the, the, the literal community that we live in. And, you know, it's a bit of an act of, of um, uh, you know, it's a mischievous act in a way, because if, the, if I can make the visual landscape of my community a little less ugly, I've actually made some progress towards making a, a better society, I think. And, and it's from that point all the way through to the literary work that we do, which I see as being really helping us to figure out how to think, uh, you know, how to talk to each other, how to think, how to get our heads around complex problems. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, there's nothing more complex than trying to unpack a poem. <laughs> and if you are kind of exercising that part of your brain, you're in a much better position to be able to stand up and say, I don't think that freeway should go through that farm field. Um, or whatever the issue is that you have to deal with in your civic role as a citizen. Mm-hmm. And so well, that's what I, in some part, that's the, what it means to me to be, you know, doing this kind of work in a community. But it, it, it's also in part bigger than that, in, in that I see a role, uh, you know, I think we do play a role here that we don't have any kind of informal sort of internships or anything. A lot of people move through here, and often just for a few hours at a time. But we do get a lot of people through our door. We do talk to a lot of people. And if you can, like, you can take a 20-year-old and you can convince them that what they should already know in their, you know, deep in their bones, that they that they have options, that they, they don't have to accept what's handed to them, that they can step into their life and imagine a way forward, imagine change, imagine, and, and sort of step into it and enact it and like start to make it happen in small tangible ways i mean if you can set people you know on that course you can ruin their lives in a really interesting way <laughs> you, you can you can drive them away from gainful employment and you can you can actually sort of help them become the kinds of people that our communities need so that's a big part of our role too is just you know taking the time to talk to people mm-hmm. and to and to just say well just do it. <laughs> what, are you, what are you waiting for? <laughs> yeah. I, by the way, I think I'm going to call you the letterpress philosopher uh, from now on. <laughs> these, uh, these are really great thoughts. But uh, Well, when are... you, I do long print runs often. you got to think about something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is great. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I, I think as I have discovered letterpress, it, it definitely invokes a more thoughtful approach uh, for me. And even, you know, as you mentioned, dealing with complexity, um, for me, my interpretation of that has has been my world and the tech side of things. Right? I work in computer security. So like dealing with really hard programs or writing some kind of code. But I, I definitely think letterpress printing in and of itself has sort of invoked this more thoughtful thoughtfulness, I would say. Um, because when, as you're right, you're totally right. When you're sitting in front of the press and you know, you've got a long run of something, you've got plenty of time and there's infinite number of options for you to think about. And so, and also it just takes time, you know, letterpress, it, it's yeah. not instantaneous. And so, so I, you, you mentioned you're sort of, um, you're younger than the old and older than the young. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, no, I'm, I'm right smack in the middle of it. I think if I'm lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would probably. I'm, I'm more on the younger end, and 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 our generation is more attuned to sort of the instantaneous, you know, and and having something more quickly than um, generations before us, and so the the letter just letterpress in general and it, it, we've talked about this numerous times on this podcast with other guests but it just invokes this need to to slow down it necessitates this you is, slow this down. is what i met, met you know earlier when i talked about the you know the impact on the person making the thing you know what mm-hmm. the, the tool tools are never well they're kind, of, they're kind of morally neutral but they're not neutral in terms of their impact like i mean so uh you know I built a house a couple of years ago just because I, you know, have some spare time. And <laughs> the uh, uh, when I built the house, it was important to me. We were building a house off grid, and uh, it's not a huge house; it's about sixteen hundred square feet. And and uh, I decided to frame it all by hand, you know, like not to use an air nailer. And this was in part because I didn't want to listen to a generator run, you know, uh, to charge a compressor. Mm-hmm. I thought that would like, you know diminish the uh, my experience <laughs> so um 
So that was all fine and dandy, you know, frame this house up by hand, a little slower, but it didn't really matter. But by the time I got to the point, I put cedar shingles uh, uh, as the exterior cladding in the house. And I started in the cedar shingles. And the you know, sort of number of nails you're driving when you're putting shingles on is just you know, <laughs> insane. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I thought, you know what? Now it's time to use an air. <laughs> and I did. And you know, I had its own kind of... Uh, you know, challenges because I, I kept climbing up and down the scaffolding to start or turn off a generator because I didn't want to listen to it the whole time. Um, but, you know, it, it you got to look at the tools you have and the job you're doing and, and you know, the, the issue of time, I mean, you know, all these things, and you, and you decide what the value is of doing one thing a certain way or another. And, and it's again, it's we're all going to have somewhat different answers about that because we're at different points in our lives. We have different needs and, and uh, you know, and we want to be, at the end of the day, you know, uh, these things are important. I, I think that they, they're not neutral. They have an impact. But as I often say to students when there's students around, um, nobody really knows, needs to know how you made this thing. <laughs> like, what matters is the impact, you know, like that it has when it, it's finished, you know, for the, the person who encounters it. Mm-hmm. So if you had to, you know, wrap it in rubber bands and stand and hop on one leg and you know, <laughs> tie a hand behind your back or whatever to get it done, as long as you don't hurt the equipment and you don't hurt yourself, you know, physically or morally, then then uh, then go for it. <laughs> you know, it needs to know how ridiculous <laughs> it was uh, if you can, you know, justify it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's very true. That. Well, so one of the things I wanted to, I, I kind of want to uh, dive in with you on is, um, is printing is, is how you print. So you're, I mean, your you named off quite a few presses. You have a CMP, yeah. I think, and a Mealy vertical. And, uh, I know you've got a Vandercook cause I see that in your Instagram a lot. Is that, what is your press? What's your number one go-to? Well, I've got I've got three Vandercooks, which seems okay. excessive in this day and age. But uh, the, the first one I got it, it was a, a, a two nineteen, uh, which is a you know good size format for book sheets and so on. And and I it, I got it for free. I was buying another an offset press, a Czechoslovakian Adas press, and uh, which is the worst press we ever bought. But it, it was the first one, and and uh, it got us through a few years before it got junked. But um, wow. But anyway, so I bought this Vandercook. As uh, it, it was literally under a pile of boxes in the back of this print shop, and I said to the owner as we were moving this this big offset press, I said, "Oh, you've got a Vandercook." He goes, "Yeah, you want it?" I said, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Put it in the truck," and that was it. So that got me started. And uh, uh, I also have a, another two nineteen that has a, a power uh, a carriage on it and an adjustable bed. And then I have the, the third one. Uh, is a, uh, a universal one with an adjustable bed. And so I, I use them all in different ways. Um, the big power one I'm basically using for large and more complex jobs, particularly ones that uh, with tight registration, um, it, it's just a, a workhorse. Um, mm-hmm. the, the smallest, the universal I use for doing quick proofing because it cleans, you know, I can clean it in about seven minutes, you know. Um, so uh, when I'm setting on the linotype, uh, uh, I'll, I'll throw a page on it and I'll run a quick proof and see what's wrong. Um, I also use that one with students or guests that are in the shop because it's a very, you know, easy and safe press to use. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the 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 oldest of the uh, uh, the, the Vandercooks, uh, I've mostly had dedicated the last world of my. I'm doing a big wood type folio project um, that spans all of the I don't know 160 some fonts of wood type I have. Um, uh, you know, and I've kind of d- dedicated that to that job so that I never have to take, you know, uh, <laughs> right. I can never take it apart. I, I just can always leave it and walk away and come back as depending on the ebb and flow of my day. Cause that projects like that, it, it's a multi-year project ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, cause I can only put a little bit of time in it every week and, uh, but I want it to progress, but uh, being able to come and do an hour at the end of the day on that project, no matter what else is going on, is kind of it's been great to have a, a just a press dedicated to it. So, um, and the Chandler and Price I use more for die cutting and scoring. I don't put an ink on it as much as I should, but I just don't have a need. And the vertical melee right. is sort of the, my next project. It's because um, you always need to be learning something new. Uh, it's you know I don't anticipate doing a lot of serious printing on it i'm you know it's hard to say i'm mostly probably going to again set up for die cutting and perforating and scoring uh we do a lot of scoring of book jackets and book wrappers and all that kind of stuff 
and uh, and some die cutting. I got to die cut a bunch of maple uh, syrup labels shortly here. So, <laughs> so so it, it, you end up with enough presses around to kind of like cover the kinds of things that you want to do. Right. And because we we're because we we're a commercial print shop on, on and publisher as not just a small artisanal shop, you know, that I deal with after work, we've been over time and I've been doing this 21 years. So over time, most of this equipment has kind of come to me rather, you know, affordably. It's not mm-hmm. only in one instance that I go looking for a press and ask for it. Everything else kind of showed up. Yeah, that's funny. Um uh, ours did definitely. Uh, we we pursued our Vandercook pretty hard for sure, and I think um, most folks maybe who have a Vandercook these days probably have a similar experience. Although there are definitely stories where you know Vandercooks are like, "Yeah, I just have it. It was free, and nobody came to get it." You know, which is amazing to me because now they're yeah. in such high Not demand. Not as common as stories it used to be. Because um, yeah. even I, so, it was 1997 when we started, and even then, I mean, you think about it. There was social media was not a thing. Um, I discovered within a few years that the uh, there was a le- the letterpress listserv. I don't know whether you follow it. I can't remember whether se- I've seen you there or not. But and it's mostly populated by the kind of more uh, the elder statesman crowd. You know? <laughs> um, uh, but but it uh, at the time you know it was the closest I came to having uh, help because there was really nobody in the in my region, um, and I wasn't kind of traveling into the states or I didn't have any connections in the states at that point. There was there are no real strong book arts programs in this country, so I mean it, it was hard to find anyone to talk to about about letterpress. I mean I taught myself how to do virtually everything I know how to do. I didn't have books. I didn't have. Mm-hmm. I just sort of stepped into it and you know kept doing it till it worked. And I have all of my fingers. So there. We- <laughs> Uh, yeah, you are blessed. That's good. Um, trial by fire. So we've talked about on the, the podcast before, kind of just diving in. But it's also in. that all these things are really pretty basic mechanical yeah. things. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I'm not, you know what, I wasn't the kid that was taking cars apart in his teens. I, I didn't really care about that. I was more, I was, I was more about the trees. <laughs> like I like being outdoors. Um, so I wasn't, you know, but I certainly had some exposure to, you know, doing mechanical work and, uh, as did Gary, and and by the time we arrived at this, I mean, I think that the fact that there were were two of us, we kind of emboldened each other, you know, that there were things that I don't know that I would have jumped and gone or tried. Like, I think the first time, uh, as well as my linotype, we have, you know, Ludlow casters, and Ludlow's are a great sort of starter caster because they're very simple. And, uh, you know, uh, the first one we bought, I don't know that I would have bought it unless Gary would have been standing there, he was looking at me, and I was looking at him, and it's like, well... I don't know. I, what do you think? I, well, it probably wouldn't be too bad. Well, but, you know, so we kind of <laughs> go to each other into it, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I, that's kind of been our business model. You know, <laughs> it's, if he doesn't look too worried and I don't look too worried, well, I guess maybe we're not too worried. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems to have gone well for you so far. That's for sure. Um, what, what type of, um, ink do you usually use? Are you oil-based ink shop? I guess, well, for letterpress, I should be more specific for your letterpress printing. Yeah, I, you know, I've dabbled with all kinds of stuff, but mostly I'm using oil-based. Um, for the most part, uh, because we're running a a mixing color system for offset, which is all, uh, oil-based, it just never made any sense to run two ink systems in here and i've never had much trouble uh getting the results i want uh you know pretty much out of the can i've still like everyone else i i'm forever on the look for you know the the perfect black and uh uh, i haven't found it yet i've i've had good luck right somewhere i don't know about the printer joe blumenthal but joe ran a, a press called spiral press kind of in the war years in new york city and he was incredible. He did a lot of printing for, you know, uh, Robert Frost's publishers and so on. Um, a great hero of mine. You know, I would say that you know, Blumenthal and then Rocky Steinhauer at Steinhauer Press, uh, who died a few years ago uh, in, in New England, were or certainly, and, and Updike, who was a printer in, in Boston. These are kind of my guys, you know, like they mm-hmm. were people who were, they were print shops, you know, they were, they were, printing books for the most part and they weren't trying to be the arts and crafts movement you know fancy schmancy expensive rarefied stuff they were just making really really solid good books you know and they made it look easy and uh so anyway but i read in a a, one of joe blumenthal's books at one point he talked about aging ink and so i started doing that a few years ago where i'll take a you know we big buy big you know five count uh pound cans or whatever and so i'll skim off a pound 
of ink and put it aside for six months. And uh, it just seems to kind of thicken it a little bit without getting gritty or, or difficult. It stands up a little better on the type. Um, and that's gone pretty well. Um, when I have tried some of the other, uh, you know, options that are out there, either in, in rubber base or in oil base, I find they don't, I do a lot of backing up. So where you're printing both sides of the sheet mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and I do almost exclusively pile, uh, like stack drawing, pile drawing, you know, so I'm, I'm not fanning sheets out all over the place. And so a few times I found incredible blacks. And uh, and then run them. I've been really happy. And then I go to back them up, and they offset like hell. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, oops, guess well we're not going that way. And you can <laughs> add dryers, but you know if I'm going to pay extra money for a special ink, I'd rather it worked out of the can. Right. Um, if I'm going to mess with it, I'll mess with what I can get affordably through the the usual channels of the trade. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What well, yeah, you mentioned um, type and and polymer, so you kind of go to both, yeah. and, and you. you depending on the situation have you ever um tried your hand at hand carving do you ever approach that type of like line of cuts or even wood yeah cuts? i've done some line of cuts over the years i mean i don't consider i you know i like i said earlier I, when i started into a university as a, as a cartoonist you know a, a, a political cartoonist at the university newspaper so um i've got some graphic ability but i don't really think of myself as an illustrator um but yeah i do cut occasionally um for the most part you know, we I, I work a fair amount with competent <laughs> illustrators. People like Wesley Bates is a really wonderful Canadian uh, wood engraver. He and I have done a lot of work together, and a lot of the awards that we've won for design, Wes has been on board as part of, you know part of the project. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I, it, often if I want illustration, I go to someone who's good at it. Mm -hmm. um, but my real passion is type. You know. Uh, which I often, will, especially with wood type, will use in a graphic fashion. Um, but really, you know, I'm one of those weird people that like, you know, pages up, page after page of just lush looking, you know, 12 point type makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> Uninterrupted by the, you know, the pyrotechnics of illustration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, typography is something that is very foreign to me and, and it seems ingrained uh, somewhat in letterpress just by virtue of you know handling individual letters you know you become more aware of of how they look on the page uh, rather than when you type something in Microsoft Word and print it on an inkjet printer you know it's a, it's a different um... it's possible to do both of those things well <laughs> and possible to do both of those things badly yeah and and, and the difference is like love and attention ultimately because you know there's not a lot to know I mean people you know People pretend that there's that it's complicated and that there's you know some kind of you know magic you know uh, 400 page rule book on how to typeset books, but really you know most of what you need to know about typesetting a book I, I could you know I could <laughs> a day in my shop and you'd kind of walk away with those skills for the most part and you spend it, it's kind of like I don't know I, I don't curl but Gary does you know like curlings right so you throw a rock and you sweep right and you have to get it closest to the center and it's a, one of the things about a sport like that is that you know, and within one day, you can kind of be at the point where you're enjoying yourself and it's going well, but you spend the rest of your life perfecting it to get mm -hmm. you're getting really good at it. And, and typography is like that. We all are setting type all the time. We're all typographers. Um, but, it, you know, to get to the point where you really understand, you know, all the pieces that are in motion and how to kind of like marshal them in a way that gets the best result. I mean, that's a lifetime practice. Right. Well, is is typography more about typesetting and the placement of letters, or is it is it sort of combined with the selection of the typeface? Right? I mean, I've never understood really because I I can understand understand kerning and and how you know you you want to lay out whatever it is you're printing, but I, I've, it's been always been so foreign to me selecting a typeface to communicate some type of message. Well, it, it, it's, it's about learning to see, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the best type that you available to you is the one available to you, ultimately, right? right. So, right. Um, so if, if you've got, like, 18-point bamboo, well, you better get good with 18-point bamboo and not be worrying about not having garamond, you know? like <laughs> so, so there's that part of it. But the thing is that all these different typefaces um, in metal and in digital have different characteristics that will make them more or less... Um, uh, appropriate to a given job. So here's a really simple example. So uh, one of the one of the best digital 
typefaces out there that you see a lot of is is uh, either Adobe Garmond or uh, uh, you know Adobe Garmond uh, Premiere, you know, which are two really good Garmins, and they're just they they come with your system usually, and everybody's got them. So, um, but they're well made. Uh, they they are really based, you know, in those historic models. Uh, they're they're good typefaces, but they suck at a lot of things. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Garmins, you know, tend to be uh, have quite large capitals and quite wide capitals, and they look fabulous. But if you're say typesetting a newsletter and you've got a three-column page, um, so you've got these like short lines of type, um, and it's full of like proper names because it's a you know it's news, so it's you know all kinds of this person and that place, so capital letters all the hell over the place. Mm-hmm. That page is gonna look terrible because all those really large capital letters are gonna pop, pop, pop all over the place, and there isn't enough of a line, not enough length of that line to kind of you know, make it not look jumpy. So that, that's a very practical issue that if you looked at Garmin long enough and and compared it long enough to a, you know, a typeface that might work better in that situation, say like Minion, which has similar characteristics other than it's narrower, um, then you would eventually come to that conclusion. Oh, look, that's what's going on. But it takes a long time to kind of get that, that kind of confidence familiarity so that you trust what your eyes tell you and you can see what the impact is. Yeah, I've always that's that kind of nails it for me in the sense that I've I have always struggled with. To me, it seems the selection of a typeface is is a stylistic in in many ways, and I feel like I lack an eye for what. Just like you know, designing a project, like ah, I don't know how to design something that looks looks good. Well, what is good, and it's all in the eye beholder, right? But it's to me, it's kind of the same for typefaces in many ways and what you just described is very logistical it's very practical that's right it wasn't stylistic at all i mean there are stylistic elements you know because garamond is a historic model like it 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 brings with it that history in the same way that a building from that period has similar you know attributes or a painting from that period you know like has similar attributes you know we're always in our in whatever era we are in whether it's the baroque or the Renaissance, or whatever, you know, or the modernist period, you know, we are, have absorbed and are adhering to or rebelling against those major move, you know, characteristics of that movement that, that play out in clothing and buildings and, and, and paintings and all these things. And type is the same. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so that's one piece of it. But really, you know, ultimately, type is a you know, well, physical, at least in metal type, it's a physical thing. And, and, and digital type is a, you know, a simulation of that physical thing. But, but they, so they have characteristics that, that are not stylistic. It's not, and I think people think that because, say, Garamond is an incredible typeface, that it, it should work for everything. It's like, well, no, it won't work for everything. It works for the things it works for. So you have to kind of dig in and solve that riddle. Right. And that's yeah. okay. But, but here, the best advice I can give you about type is uh, contrary to the you know the reality of our our current moment and that is limit yourself so the best thing you can do uh and letterpress helps with this because you know there's only so much time space money um but you know buy a couple sizes of a typeface and live with it for a year don't use other typefaces very much like use that one and and you will get to know it in the same way that if like if you never go outside of your house, if you get in your car and you drive to work, and then you come back, drive in the garage, go and sit in front of your television, you you never talk to your neighbors. You don't know your neighborhood. Like you don't get to know anything because you are just too focused in your own scene. So you know, but if you sort of are intently kind of engaged with the things around you, then you get to know them, you become familiar. You know, you know what what is funny and what isn't. You know what is acceptable, mm-hmm. what is not, and. Type is the same. You you have to kind of you have to kind of step into the problem. You, you so when I started out, the the first uh, typeface I bought was Bembo, and I bought like a, a series of it. University of Toronto Press had had a bunch, and Don Black had gotten, and I bought like a ca- a cabinet of type from Don Black, and uh, it was in okay shape. It was pretty beat up, but it, it was as advertised. Don's always good like that, and and uh, I started in. I did my first couple projects, you know, using that Bembo. And at the same time, I bought uh, 
a good version of digital bembo, such as it was at the time. This, you know, things were a bit rougher going in the late 90s. Uh, this is pre-open type, you know. Uh, but anyway, I got to know, I got to know how it worked, you know. And I, and I was probably spent a year or so before I bought another typeface, uh, and, and that became my habit. It was never to sort of get a whole bunch of things at once, but always to kind of grow into a typeface, get to know its limitations, you know fail with it a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. and then figure it out. This, this is a, the only strategy I can think of. Um, there's no shortcut. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah <laughs> right. Yeah. The, that's definitely, um, uh, it, 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 it's really fascinating actually. It, it, Cause it just kind of goes back to the whole letterpress is forcing me to slow down, you know, and it's the same yeah. way with the, the type and understanding sort of an appreciating, how it communicates, uh, which is really cool. One one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and it seems you are um, very in tune with, is paper and selection for your projects in particular. So you, it seems like you use a, quite a quite a few different handmade papers. Um, can you talk about just paper in general and, and letterpress printing and how you kind of incorporate those handmade uh, papers into your projects? Yeah, I mean. Uh... It's it's hard to get good paper for the most part uh, without paying a lot of money for it, and uh, we you know we've had a good relationship with the Saint Armand Mill in Montreal uh, for a number of years. Uh, we use a lot of their they make kind of two grades of paper more or less that we use. One is an actual handmade sheet, and the other is the same pulp, but same cotton pulp, but it's made on an old Fortinaire paper maker that David has there. Um, it's kind of, you know, it, it's, I consider it gigantic, but in the papermaking world, it's, you know, it's a toy. Um, so um, it's, uh, and it, that's called his canal line of papers. And so we use those quite a bit. But he has another line called Old Masters, which is, a, again, more of a text weight. Uh, you know, when my uh, my friend Glenn Gluska, who is a letterpress printer in, in uh, Mont Toronto and then in Montreal later in his life, he died, in, uh, I don't know, five, six years ago now. And and uh, he left me his linotype and uh, some other equipment, a fair amount of type. And uh, and he also left me a whole bunch of handmade paper that came from different places, uh, from Germany, from, from England, from France. And so I have little sort of snap, snippets of things that I, I try to integrate into my work because it, you know, it's uh, because of, there's a, a sentimental attachment to it and uh, to its story. And often it's from mills that don't exist anymore. Uh, like Barcham, you know, Green in in in, uh, in the UK or or Imigo in, in California, um, but you know, it, I, you kind of have to look. I, I, it's at a certain level, it's hard to argue with the logic that nothing beats you know a piece of foundry type that's been set by hand and then is impressed, you know, carefully into a, a moistened, you know, dampened piece of. of handmade paper it really is spectacular but it's not for everything and 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 only a certain number of people can afford to engage with that so there's also i think a real place for things like mohawk superfine which is quite a you know a consistent and affordable sheet uh you know it's you can afford to make mistakes with a sheet like that you know you um or this uh uh you know, Harold's uh, project at Boxcar, you know, to sort of bring out this flurry sheet, I think is a really interesting one. Um, you know, there are some domestic sheets like that that are are cotton or just a really high-end, you know, wood pulp. Uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, it doesn't, I'm less hung up about what what the material is as long as you can make it work, as long as it, it suits its purpose. Um, in our own work, like as trade publishers, we don't tend to use recycled paper um, you know, there's a few things, there's all kinds of things we should be using recycled paper for, like, you know, business forms and phone books, if they still exist, and, and <laughs> toilet paper, and, you know, uh, government flyers or whatever. But, you know, when it comes to printing literature, I think it's something worth getting a tree down for. Um, you want, you know, the problem with recycled stock, of course, is every time you recycle, uh, again, you you shorten that fiber and that you shorten the amount of strength, the, the robustness of the, uh, and there are fewer of the kind of glues, you know, that exist naturally in, in wood, you know, pulp that, that are surviving through each stage of that. And you, you get something that just doesn't, isn't going to stand the test of time. And, uh, you know, I try to make books that will last a thousand years. 
if I can do it, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I'm pretty careful about about. I, I tend to avoid recycled stocks for those kinds of things. Though we certainly don't mind using them for more ephemeral jobs. Yeah. Well, well. So one of the things I enjoy uh, on your Instagram is your printers after hours. I don't know if you call it a series or just yeah. you know <laughs> when they occur, uh, but you know it's it's always fun to see uh, some of the stuff you've got going, like the maple sugaring, for instance. You mentioned earlier you're gonna uh, die cut some some labels for your maple sugaring. Can can I, can we send listeners to uh, to come buy some of your sugar online <laughs> <laughs> or your syrup? I guess is what it would be, right? <laughs> Uh, we're just keeping that local right at the yeah, moment. But okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, like I said earlier, it, like I, I'm actually a, a pretty private person ultimately. And, uh, but it, you know, it's, it seems important to me to share some of our wider life with the people that, you know, like I'm on Instagram, frankly, because I think it's important to be part of the broader conversation that's going on. I know a lot of fantastic printers in 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 uh, who are in, on the book end of things. You know, fine press people, and they've never heard of all of these incredible people that are all over Instagram. Yeah. Um, if you ask them, they'd say letterpress is really you know probably in decline. There's not many people around doing it. But you know, so the, and and then the other way too. You all these people who think. You know, their main engagement with the letterpress community is, say, Instagram. And they there's this whole other realm of people who are practicing right now or working in, in letterpress who, who they don't encounter. Um, they, they never see their work because they're not out there posting it. So I don't know. I, I just feel some – it's kind of like the generation between these you know, two parties. It seems to me important to be out there and trying to demonstrate a way of – of using that technology that isn't just flighty, you know, that isn't just like, oh, here are all the things I've done that I'm curating to make me look as good as possible. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, I, I try to put up stuff about when I make mistakes, if the mistakes are interesting and yeah. instructive. I mean, I don't obviously put up every stupid thing I do, otherwise <laughs> I do nothing else. But, but, but this is partly too why yeah. I think that if we're gonna like, if we're gonna make it, if we're gonna like, you know, if, if we're going to, uh, if we're gonna live in communities that are sustainable and are worth living in, we got to step into the problem, and and we've got to, uh, you know, the reason that say we can, uh, you know, we so easily pollute, you know, is that we can't tell a birch tree from a maple tree. Like we just don't know. We don't. We 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 can't see it. We don't know about it. We can't name it. So it doesn't matter to us. Um, so trying to sort of encourage people to kind of step into their world, you know, whether their world is urban or rural, it's not, you know, a matter of privileging one of those over the other. But step into your community and own it, like take responsibility for it. And, you know, you can do that through your artistic you know, creative practice, but you also do it in every choice that you make, every hour that you spend, everything that you do is a statement of what's important to you. And I just think it's important to sort of show that in progress and happening and, and not just like, uh, I know people think that if you want to be a good letterpress printer, you sacrifice everything else and you're in your shop all the time. Like my shop is the least important thing in my life relative to my, my family, relative to my you know, community and the environment in which that I, I live here. Mm -hmm. Like the, the shop is a tool for me to express my love and to invest in my community. Mm -hmm. um, it is not the ends; it is the you know the means. Right, right, right. So that's what that's printer after printers after hours is kind of all about that. Wow, yeah, it's very profound, and I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I think that's actually probably a, a fantastic way to to end our conversation. But I want folks to uh, know where they can find you on after the the printers after hours and uh, on the internet so uh where can uh, folks find you well they can well primarily they can find me by finding the king's arms pub in kentville and we're behind <laughs> that so that's okay. the best way to find me ultimately it's more interesting than seeing see me on an iphone but but uh but yeah printers after hours and, and uh, all of our other posts you know about the press are are just if you look for Gaspar Press uh, on Instagram, you'll find it there. We've got a reasonably uh, good website that's in need of updating, but uh, it's still functioning pretty well. It's got a lot of stuff on it, and 
but yeah, just, you know, we're very open to people coming by We're it's safe to say that as opposed to if I was in Brooklyn or something, because, you know, people have to, you, you don't accidentally, end up <laughs> you really got to work at it. Yeah. So, but you know, we're, we're very much open to, uh, printers coming by and hanging out for a day and seeing what we can learn from each other. Uh, so, you know, get in touch if you're ever in Nova Scotia, you or any of your listeners <laughs> and come see us. Yeah, we definitely will. If we are in, uh, uh, in, in your, your part of the world, I guess, a different country, but, uh, thank you so much, Andrew, for, for taking the time. This was a fantastic conversation. Oh, thanks. I'm so glad that you're, you've taken this, this thing on, you know, you're getting a nice range of people, uh, you know, on your podcast and uh, it can't help, but help people, you know, step further into their, their practice. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. Well, Hey, thank you for listening. I personally thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Andrew. We obviously covered a lot of ground on publishing and letterpress, which I think is really valuable. Uh, but I think Andrew offered up quite a few life lessons that particularly strike a chord with me, like living locally and within our communities, engaging and joining the conversation, um, whether it be by our actions or by the things we print or communicate. I think it's an incredibly valuable point to sometimes step back and evaluate our ultimate goals uh, and the means by which we get there. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>